0: Hello and welcome to the Spirit Guide Society Podcast. My name is Pedro Shanahan and I'm your spirit guide. Tonight we had Paul Hletko from Few Spirits in the House from Evanston, Illinois. This unique distillery is cranking out some really impressive spirits. Definitely pushing the boundaries of what it means to be a craft distiller. Tonight we tried their bourbon, their single malt, their rye, and something that they call the breakfast whiskey. Bourbon finished in maple syrup barrels. Bam! Check it out. This breakfast whiskey was a really super limited release, so you might not be able to get it, but it's still fun to hear about it. Don't be jealous. Tell your friends about this podcast if it's something that you enjoy, and be sure to enjoy responsibly. That means don't be bummed out later. We have a really, really great whiskey in the house tonight, and I'm really excited to turn you guys on to it because I don't think they're getting enough uh, attention in, in the big whiskey world. Though. Like, you know, there's really a hard road for the craft distillers that are coming up in America right now in terms of trying to get shelf space and having to compete with much bigger brands with a lot deeper pockets and so in order to kind of grab eyeballs or in this case uh, taste buds um they have to be very creative uh and we've got one of the makers in the house tonight right is that me it's not me. Uh, where'd Paul go? Oh. I'm over here. Oh, okay. I'm I was worried. I, was I like, wanted to hear
1: about this stuff. It sounds awesome. Yeah, right? right. <laughs> this guy sounds handsome, funny. This is going to be good. It's you, Paul. I'm talking about oh, you.
0: Shit. Yes. Wait, what? No one else but you. Uh, so please give a nice welcome to Mr. Paul Haletko. Hello. And the brand is Few Spirits out of Evanston, Illinois. And if you're not... Yeah, this is a, a shout-out to all our friends in Chicagoland, right? That, Let's right? go Blackhawks. Come on over, Paul. Yeah, go Blackhawks. Go Black Hawks. Okay,
1: all right. Go Cubs. All right, all right, well, let's talk about your brand a little bit. Yeah. Um, <laughs> right, right. so no more right. Nobody has whiskey in front of him either, right? Not yet. No. We're going to take care of that. No, we, we got to fix that. Oh,
0: okay, well, they day, will start pouring. This is
1: a crisis situation. Oh,
0: no, it, this is a crisis we are constantly in in battle oh, with. Oh, good, right? all right. It we doesn't guys, stress me out at all. we got
1: whiskey in the house. <laughs>
0: that's right. we got plenty of whiskey. We're
1: going to be all right. We got
0: a nice intimate crowd tonight, so I think everything will be just fine. And day is a great pour. Um, so, yeah, take Yay. a deep breath. <laughs> so, Paul, tell us about uh, few Spirits. How long have you guys been in the business? How did you start, and, and why did you get into this crazy whiskey world?
1: <laughs> so, we just celebrated our seventh birthday about two weeks ago. Mm, yeah. uh, so, uh, that's kind of cool. Yeah, it's really cool. Um, you know, it's, like you were saying, you know, there's a lot of craft distillers. It's a really hard road, and it, and it is. Uh, it's incredibly hard it's very difficult uh, it's very expensive and it's really hard to grow and build i always tell people that you know the biggest one of the biggest problems of being in the whiskey business is that our larger competitors make pretty good products <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's true um, you can hate on them but their juice is good
1: you know and, oh, I, and you can't even hate them I mean, they're yeah, good they're they're good really nice people. people yeah you know, they're good people making great products and some of them are even great people but yeah yeah you know with beer you can run around and say what are you gonna do drink Budweiser I'm not gonna drink that <laughs> um, but I can't come into here and say look you're gonna drink my stuff because what else are you gonna do drink Jim Beam because yeah, you are gonna drink Jimmy. <laughs> it is really good stuff. Um, so it's really hard to be in the whiskey business on the small scale because on top of the fact, the top of the fact that you know, we don't have a whole lot of money, we don't have a lot of advertising, we don't have a lot of brand budget. We can't walk around and just throw money everywhere to get eyeballs and taste buds. Uh, we have to kind of earn them the hard way by making great quality product and telling good stories. And so, a lot of what I do when I come out to these events is I try to tell stories. Yeah, we talk about starting up a whiskey company. Why are we in Evanston? Uh, why does somebody start a whiskey distillery? Because that's an incredibly stupid thing to do. Um, How do you advise that any of you are thinking about starting a whiskey company? Don't. <laughs> um, so if there's, it's it's hard. But it's also incredibly rewarding because you get to chase this insane passion. Ah, thank you. Whiskey. Uh, you get to chase this insane passion. You get to make stuff and you can create. And you work in an amazing industry full of amazing people that everybody has the same insane passion for this liquid. And I really don't understand why whiskey has this effect on people, but it does. And whiskey really brings people together, and it brings friends together, and it brings families together, and it brings strangers together on a freaking Monday night. Um, like, What is it about whiskey that gets people this excited? But it's kind of the mystery and the wonder and what makes whiskey so special. And it's just an incredible honor to be able to have my career uh, making this stuff. And. Like you, you hear crazy stories. I, I've met husbands and wives that tell me about the night they spent uh, with a bottle of our gin, and then nine months later, uh, <laughs> uh, they have a baby Francis. Or uh, uh, I met a guy who had fallen apart, you know, fallen apart with his father and hadn't spoken to his dad in thirty years. And he tasted our whiskey, and for whatever random reason. He said you know what my dad would really like this and after 30 years this guy calls up his father the next week they're together and they've rebuilt a relationship after 30 years that's the magic and the power of whiskey and so you know let's raise a little toast to that all right cheers Just to whiskey cheers you guys that's cool stuff um but so a few spirits uh, started up about seven years ago um and the kind of why we why it started up is a you know kind of an interesting little story, a little bit different, but I had a little bit of a mental break, um, as you've probably already guessed because I started a whiskey company. <laughs> Nobody's saying does that, uh, but my grandfather died, and uh, hopefully none of your grandfathers have died, but it is kind of the way life goes. Uh, no one has ever survived life yet um, but Prior to World War II, my grandfather's family uh, owned what is now a major brewery in the Czech Republic. Uh, 1939, uh, you probably heard about it. Um, Nazis invaded, uh, took everything, Uh, confiscated the brewery, uh, sent the entire family to the camps. And both parents, all the grandparents, aunts, uncles, uh, six siblings of my grandfather all got murdered in the camps. Uh, He was the only family member to survive. And he spent the rest of his life trying to get the brewery back. And when he died, it kind of struck me that if somebody didn't do something, it was going to be gone forever. And I really didn't want that to happen. I wanted to get a little bit more in touch with that family legacy and that family pride and, you know, what we've done in the past. And I also wanted to do something that was going to be positive. I wanted to do something that was not going to be negative. I don't want to raise a fist to the sky. You know, it's it's. Been a while. It's not coming back. It's okay, but perhaps we can do something, or I can do something, to build on this legacy, and you know maybe someday build something as cool as that again. And that's why I started a distillery. Um,
0: why in Evanston?
1: Yeah. It's where I live. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so why in Evanston? Uh, because it was really easy. Um, <laughs> The full story is I basically drew a six-hour radius around Evanston because I figured I had to be able to drive it. Six hours is about as long as I figured I'd be willing to drive and tried to figure out where to put it. Do I put it in Michigan where I grew up? Do I put it in Milwaukee? Do I put it in Springfield? Do I go down to St. Louis? Do I go into the city of Chicago? There's all these pros and cons, but at the end of it, I realized that I was probably going to be working somewhere between 25 and 26 hours a day and um, the ability to be close to home was really nice. Mm-hmm. And so you know, my kids are all, you know, they're not grown up yet, but you know, they're older. But back when we were starting up, I could walk them to school because the distillery was about halfway between our house and the elementary school where my kids went. And so I could go. Uh, the teachers used to have mystery readers. So they'd have a surprise, and some you know one a parent would come in and read to all the kids. You know, I got to be the mystery reader several times, and that's really fun. Um, kids get when they're young, kids actually like you. <laughs> so they get super excited that it's their dad coming in, and it's mostly mystery readers or moms. And so everyone's like, oh my god, it's a dad! It's a dad, this is awesome! So that's great. Um, that's a great story. The problem with being in Evanston is why it's kind of geographically interesting that we're in Evanston. Sounds like you might know a little bit of the history of Evanston. Uh, but Evanston is actually where the entire prohibition movement started. Um, speaking of prohibition, we should probably drink some whiskey, right? Sure.
0: <laughs> sure, yeah. Cheers. So, so let's, let's talk about this first mark for a second, yes. and then we'll, we'll get back to uh, the history of Evanston, because that sounds very yeah. interesting. Yes. Uh, what is this first whiskey that we have in our glass?
1: I believe this is the bourbon. Yes. So it smells like the bourbon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. I would hope you would know. Yeah, <laughs> It does smell like the bourbon. Um, so this is the Few Spirits bourbon. Okay. Uh, as you sit and nose it, and as you, if you've already tasted it, uh, probably one of the first things you're going to notice is that it does not taste like Kentucky bourbon. Uh, anybody want to guess why it doesn't taste like Kentucky bourbon? It's not Kentucky bourbon. <laughs> There is exactly zero reason for me to make a whiskey that tastes like Kentucky, uh, because as we all know, uh, the boys and girls down in Kentucky make some pretty damn fine bourbon. So why would you buy that? You wouldn't. Um, Worst sales pitch on the planet? Everybody wants to know the worst sales pitch? (laughs) Tastes just like Maker's Mark, and it's only 20 bucks more. oh, I better get two at that price. (laughs) So we don't make make bourbon that tastes like Kentucky because they already make it. We're going to make something that's new. We're going to make something that's different. We're going to try to do stuff that we like to make. We don't want to make something that somebody else makes because what's the fun in that? It's not fun. And whiskey's supposed to be fun. Um, Sometimes it's not. That's why we're here. (laughs) (laughs) But it's supposed to be fun. So making whiskey should be as fun as drinking it. Should be as fun as selling it and pouring it. Again, this is bringing people together. So we don't make bourbon that tastes like Kentucky because that's already out there. Uh, To me, the defining characteristic of the few bourbon is the spice. Um, The mash bill, honestly, it's relatively traditional. Uh, It's a 70% corn, 20% rye, 10% malt. Uh, I don't know of a bourbon out there that has that exact mash bill, but I know it's out there.
0: Four Roses, one of their mash bills is a, is Very a 20% similar. mash bill. Oh, is it? 20% rye mash bill. Oh, okay. They have, they have two right, mash bills miles. and five yeast strains. Yes. So where they get funky is with their, their yeast, yeast strains. So, but this would be considered in the bourbon world, it, were we to compare it to a Kentucky mash bill, uh, the 20% would be qualified as a high rye mash bill, yes. whereas a traditional mash bill in Kentucky would be around maybe 13 to 15% Correct. rye if that's your uh, flavor grain, you were comparing it to Maker's Mark. Now, Maker's Mark is a wheated Is one. a weeded bourbon. So sure. usually in the world of bourbon, you make a choice between your rye or your wheat, one being very savory. Obviously, think of the way that wheat bread is very palatable and sweet and, you know, weedy. And then on the uh, other hand, you have rye, which... It kind of imparts a spiciness or a sourness. Think it's, rye bread. Yeah, rye bread. The difference between wheat bread and rye bread. So you can kind of get that in the nose. I think <laughs> I, I get that. There's a there's definitely like a spicy note that you're talking mm-hmm.
1: about. I think there's like clove. There's some good spice, some good clove, and so we ha- we have that relatively traditional high rye mash bill. But what I think really makes it step aside and stand out, and makes it stand out from Kentucky, is the yeast that we use. So it's funny you talk about four roses. I oftentimes compare us a little bit to Four Roses because they are really the only other distillery, at least traditional distillery, that has the same crazy obsession with yeast as we do. They run their program totally different. I'm not comparing us to Four Roses. We're not Four Roses. Only Four Roses is Four Roses. Yeah, they're totally unique. They're totally different. Uh, Happens to be one of my favorite Kentucky bourbons. Um, But we are very crazy with our yeast. Uh, We use a different yeast for all of our products um interesting which is different and kind of unheard of so the yeast we use on the bourbon uh is a belgian saison beer yeast so
0: so looking for fruity flavors in the saison a little bit of fruit a little bit of funky
1: a little bit of coriander a little bit i get some clove out of there uh pepper and uh it expresses itself in the whiskey i think is pretty spicy
0: what are you guys getting? As you stick your nose in this glass, breathe in gently through your mouth. Remember to cool it over the back of your palate. Don't go too fast. We're in no rush. But think of um, what food words come to mind as you as you do that. As you get that retro nasal action happening, it. I, I smell maple too. This is really mapley to me. Yeah. I've got, it's, it's not
1: big, maple. No, that's not a <laughs>
0: That's a secret, Paul. I haven't yeah. told him about that yet.
1: I'm smelling
0: pecan. Pecan. That's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Like a pecan pie, though. There's like a there's a, a sugary crusty note in here as well, like a, a baked sugar, brown sugar.
1: Yeah, with the uh, the torch gone over it.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Day, what are you getting left? Off of nose. Yeah, yeah.
1: Um, I was getting the sh- just like the sugar. Um, I get more off of the the taste than the nose. I- okay. <laughs> it's just more comp like I was surprised by the taste because I was like smelling. I couldn't pick out anything, but then the taste was so complex and
0: just looked, like, really nice. And it's kind of more tropical into the spicy. Okay, maybe that's that Saison yeast. What are you guys getting as you tap that over your tongue? Sometimes the experience changes from your nose to your tongue and let that, that you know, surprise occur. Carrot cake. wow, that's awesome. Yeah. It's got like mint- mintiness to it. A mintiness. That's that high rye mash bill often. But again, mm-hmm. the yeast... We'll provide a lot of esters. There's potential for those tropical fruit notes that day was talking about in there.
1: Uh, cinnamon, clove. I'm getting um, a lot of that kind of burnt sugar from the sweetness and the corn, uh, but it doesn't taste like Kentucky.
0: Delicious.
1: Yeah, I got ginger note in there for sure. That's nice. That's
0: nice. One thing too, Paul, maybe add the barrels that we use too. Maybe oh, make sure. difference. That's That difference. was my next question was because it tastes like a different oakiness to me. Mm -hmm. Um, Are you using
1: smaller barrels? So we use a variety of different size barrels, but the primary difference in the barrels is where they come from. Okay. So most of the big boys get their wood from Mississippi, Missouri, Arkansas, down a little bit farther south. All of our lumber comes from Minnesota, so a lot farther north, uh, which is going to change it because up north of Minnesota it gets cold uh, and stays cold for a long time. So what that does is changes the way the trees grow. Uh, Much shorter growing season leads tighter grain, which makes for a tighter grain barrel. The wood's a little bit tighter, uh, and everything is going to affect the flavor of the whiskey. We use a number three char, which is not particularly different than an awful lot of places, but I think that char helps. Uh, But the different origin of the wood makes a big difference. Again, you cannot compete with Kentucky, so we don't try. So some people have noted that that Minnesota wood, which
0: as as the Ozarks are, I mean, this is sustainability is something we need to talk about more in the whiskey world because uh, the white oak, the Native American white oak is is a slow-growth tree. And uh, you only can get about three to four barrel cuts out of a mature uh, American white oak. So looking forward into the future, if this whiskey boon goes on forever, uh, they are going to... Continue to harvest further north. They're going to deplete the the forests in the southern, in the southeast, and in the Midwest. And they're going to continue to have to move north. So the Minnesota uh, forests are going to become more of a standard. Now that Minnesota oak, in my experience, uh, can provide more of a, like a pickly note. It's like a, that. It's a higher tannic. Like that tighter grain, it ups the tannins, at least to me. Um, what is it, did you, you do did that by choice to try to get a different kind of oakiness to the whiskey, or what, what, what several, spurred that?
1: Again, several things. One, don't compete with Kentucky. So, you know, Bronforma obviously gets all their barrels from the Bronforma Cooperage. It's not going to be available to us. Uh, ISC certainly is, uh, which is where virtually everybody else gets. We like ISC barrels. They make good stuff. We have used them in the past. We continue to have some in ISC barrels now, uh, but it's a very small minority, Uh, We've tried Kelvin, didn't like it that much. We've tried, uh, at this point, we've probably tried 15 to 20 different Coopers. Oh, wow. Um, There is literally nothing that you do in a distillery that does not affect the flavor of the whiskey, Mm -hmm. period. So we try to make sure that we are making our stuff the way we want to make it, and I've never found a Cooper that I like more than the guys that we use. And you become friends, again, whiskey brings people together. Yeah on our side of the line as well as the side.
0: You were talking about different sizes of barrels. So most of the whiskey that we've all had is coming out of 53 gallon
1: barrels. Mm-hmm. What size barrels are you using? So we use a mix of 15 gallon, 30 gallon, as well as 53 gallon barrels. Um, and what the different size of the barrel does is it changes the surface area to uh, volume ratio, uh, which is going to give a different way of extracting the wood flavors. Uh, People say it expedites aging, and that's simply not true. It changes the aging, that is true, but as far as aging it faster, it does not. Uh, It just changes the extraction as well as other reactions that are happening Um, evaporative condensation, all those things. Everything. But I mean, the condensation and all that, again, that's going to be the different grains. Everything matters but the barrel size is another thing that we do where you're gonna get an awful lot of the extractive flavors coming in you know, pretty quickly, uh, but the actual maturation of the whiskey is gonna be on a different time schedule. So one thing
0: that I look for when I'm tasting whiskey that comes out of a smaller barrel is a change in mouthfeel because we really underestimate our ability to detect texture with our tongues. But when you think about it, most of the time when you ask the average person What do you think about this whiskey? The first word to come out of their mouth is not a flavor, but a texture. They always say smooth. Smooth's not a flavor, it's a texture. So unconsciously, we always refer to texture, or we often refer to texture. Now, on a more complex level, I think we need to think about structure. Think about texture and mouthfeel as having an architecture in that from the beginning of your sip to the end, there's an arc to the flavor. There's a a, a kind of um, a spectrum of feeling that you get as you're getting that whiskey in your mouth. So I invite you to kind of take this moment, tap it over your tongue, and see if this strikes you differently <laughs> than the whiskey that you often think of, the bourbon that you usually drink. And in terms of that mouthfeel, is it does it have a longer linger? Does it have a shorter linger? Is it a stronger oak presence or or less of a oak presence? How is the mouthfeel different? And do you, I mean, I think it, it can be attributed often to the different sizes barrels. But but I want to know what your experience
1: is. I think, you know, mouthfeel is certainly obviously very important. Um, your whiskey should be savored and enjoyed. Um, the size of the barrel, I don't know that the size necessarily affects the mouthfeel so much as... Uh, when and how you make your cuts, um, you know, how, mu- you know, how much of the more heavy oils are coming through on your tail's cut, um, you know, certainly nobody makes an early heads cut, but or, nobody skilled makes an early heads cut. I think a lot of us be coming from that, uh, how late are you making your tail's cut, super early, in which case you're going to get a really super clean, neat, uh, relatively low-bodied whiskey. Are you going to go really late, in which case you're going to get a little more of the heavy stuff coming off later on in the run? Um, so that's what my kind of flavors
0: do you get? Okay, I want to go a little deeper in that. And yeah. If you let your cut go longer, you're getting more of those basey notes off the still, yep. those faints. What kind of flavors do those faints bring to the to the whiskey itself?
1: I think it adds a little bit more on the base, and so it gives you a little bit more on the bottom. If you go too late, then you're going to get into all the cardboardy, nasty stuff. I think that's one of the big ways that whiskey distillers can change the way that the whiskey tastes from house to house. Um, I always compared, like uh, if everybody knows Koval in Chicago, mm-hmm. uh, they make a super early heads cut. Very clean, very, very clean whiskey. We make ours relatively late, much dirtier. Changes the whiskey. It's not that we're better or worse than Koval. It's not that Koval's better or worse than us. It's just different, and one of the big ways that we are different from Kovalev is when you make those tails cuts. Beautiful. That makes sense. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Are you guys? Does everybody know any, heads? Does, do people know heads, start tails? Yeah. Like, does, does everyone understand what he's talking about when he says heads and tails?
1: Is that is that good? I, mean, I can I get, this is a pretty small group. I mean, primarily, I mean, I'll be talking all you want, <laughs> but uh, I do. I do. Some people say I suffer. Other people say I enjoy. A, a raging case of ADD, so I will just sit and yap and yap and yap. <laughs> um, so basically, what, ask questions. Yeah. yeah so like, feel free to ask questions. If I say something that you don't understand what it means, uh, back up. You know this. I know this is a relatively intense crowd. Um, <laughs> no, no, everyone's. Well, nice intense here. is the wrong. Yeah. Intense yeah. is the wrong word. Advanced. <laughs> How's advanced? Uh, you, Educating. You,
0: if we give them too many whiskeys, they'll turn into children very quickly. <laughs> 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 I've seen it. Well, then here we go. <laughs> <laughs> um, but when we're talking about head cut and tail cut, just very quickly, it's like the beginning of the distillation. As the spirit first, the spirit first starts coming off of the still, you get a lot of uh, volatiles. And and you think about it from a farmer's perspective, whiskey's always been made by the people, and they weren't often very scientifically inclined. 200 years ago, you didn't even have temperature gauges. You would know how hot to run your little moonshine still by experience, how close you can hold your hand to that fire for how long would be measuring the temperature. temperature. Yeah, Yeah. and then also, as what first comes off of the still, and in that time it would have been like, initially the first drips coming off the still would taste like poison and it doesn't take a, (laughs) a brain surgeon to figure out, probably don't want to drink paint thinner. in my experience, it's not a good idea. It's but it other ways. As those flavors start to change, you start to get the aldehydes go. So the the high volatiles, the first chemicals that come off of the still are those paint thinner, those lacquer, those acetone kind of smells and tastes. You don't want to drink that. So you don't save it and they they throw that away. That's the heads. And when it starts to taste like things that we actually enjoy, the aldehydes start to come off of the distillate those are flavors like peanuts and green apples um and those are foods and so again that farmer who's he or she's making the whiskey out of whatever grains they have on their farm that's when they recognize like that is good the other stuff was poison this reminds me of food let's (laughs) save this you know i mean it's as simple as that this has always been a process executed by people to help condense and preserve their commodities if you have a bunch of bushels of corn in your field at the end of a season if you don't do something with that then all your work is for nothing
1: it goes to rot it's also expensive to move tons of grain it's a lot cheaper to move barrels of whiskey because they're a lot smaller that's right exactly so yeah go ahead so how do you measure it now to like be able to like cut exactly where you want and not waste any and then how did they do in the past uh, we do everything by taste, uh, smell and taste. So either run your finger through the stream, taste it. Uh, for the most part, we've got we know when it's going to change because we've done enough time okay, Time-wise, like a volume that comes out of still. We do it by time. We'll do it by or we estimate by time. We <laughs> estimate by volume. Um, we're not just sitting there like, tasting every two seconds, going, oh my god, did it change it? Did it change it? <laughs> um, yeah, we'll know when it's going to be. Go- we know when it's about to go. And so that's when we go check. Um, But, you know, some days maybe it's three minutes in. Some days maybe it's three minutes 15 in. Some days maybe it's 245. Um, It's taste. Um, We're small. Uh, Big guys certainly are going to be doing it a little differently than we do because they have more advanced equipment. Uh, We do everything by taste.
0: So how big is your still? You say you're small, but I want to know how small.
1: Uh, Our still is about 400 gallons. For our, our finishing still is about 400 gallons. Wow um, of wash. So okay. very small. It's pretty small. Um, we have grown a lot over the last seven years and so we've now grown to the point where it takes us about 10 days to make what Jim Beam spills every day.
0: So when you're making your head cut as to taste, so as those as that, those volatiles are coming off the still, what are the first flavors that you're looking for that you know you want to make your heart
1: cut? Start? Well I mean, we're, first, we're looking for the pineapple. That's obviously really heavy hearts, and then it starts to move in, and you start getting a little bit more of the corn flavors. You're going to get the apple. You're going to get a little bit more of the whiskey, and that's where we're going to make the ta- that's where we're going to make uh, the cut. Um, the way we ferment is also let's sing them all. Excellent. So the way we ferment is also going to be a little different than a lot of the folks in Kentucky, and we temperature control and we temperature control the ferment. And what that does is it helps us to minimize the amount of heads as well as minimize the amount of tails. By having a really clean ferment, you don't get a lot of the off flavors that you might get if you just let your fermentation run wild. Interesting. And so That's an interesting uh,
0: approach. How big is your fermentation tanks?
1: Uh, we have two 30-barrel fermentation fermentation tanks, so that's 900 gallons. And we have three 60-barrel fermentation tanks, which are 1,800, 1,900 gallons. And
0: you're using Um, a a little pot still or what what kind of still is a
1: hybrid still? uh, We have a strip. We strip in a Vendome column and then we uh, use a hybrid as effectively a doubler. So 400 gallon pot still with uh, some plates on top and we use that as the doubler.
0: What's your ratio in terms of the wash that you put in your still and you run your first distillation? What's the ratio? What are you losing? Is it like nine to one, ten to one? As far as we move... Like, as you run it through the still, you've got, you know, say you've got nine gallons of wash, how many gallons of distillate do you get off your first distillation?
1: Oh, uh, our ABV coming into the mash is going to be about 10%, so we lose 90% of the volume from strip. Okay. And Uh, A little bit less than that because that's at pure alcohol versus, so 80%.
0: And all your products are double distills?
1: Yeah, everything goes through the strip, and then everything goes through the finish. So our gin gets finished in a separate still...
0: Oh, that's right. You guys had some gin tonight. Uh, the the welcome punch tonight was yeah, I forgot about the gin. made by eating up on the front bar, but he yeah. made it with gin. It's summertime. I think you guys can let down your whiskey guard for yeah. a moment. Yeah. Yeah. Enjoy some botanical spirits. Yeah. Um what's is is Tell us about that gin just really quickly. Uh, it's just few
1: Gin, is that what it's called? So it was the few Breakfast Gin, right? So that was our breakfast gin. So um, they're
0: obviously advocating a lot of alcoholism at this company. <laughs> <laughs> uh, start That's your day with... Early alcoholism.
1: <laughs> so it's... You know, uh, but you know, a group of scientists recently came out with a new study, <laughs> and they claim that they proved beyond a reasonable doubt that you cannot drink all day unless you start early. <laughs> It's science. It's not me. Don't, don't shoot the messenger. That's right. <laughs> we'll, write, uh, well, cheers yeah. to that.
0: So, so, we have a breakfast gin. Gin.
1: so we have a breakfast gin that's got juniper, uh, some Earl Grey tea, mm-hmm. and a little bit of lemon peel. And so the Earl Grey tea is going to give it a little bit of that kind of herbal, bergamot-y, um, slightly tannic uh, flavors. Cool. And we make that gin from effectively a wheated bourbon base. So while we, you know, we had the few bourbon, that's a rye bourbon. Uh, the base that we use for our gins is a weeded bourbon base. So 70% corn, 20% wheat, uh, 10% malt. But you're running it through still at a higher proof? We're going to run it through our separ- We have a different still just for gin that's designed to pull off at a much higher proof. And so our gin's going to come off a lot closer to 190, where obviously our whiskey does not come off at 190.
0: What you have in your glass now is your single malt. So
1: this is our single malt. Very limited edition that we do. Uh, We only do about 600 bottles a year. Uh, We release it uh, once a year. It releases in the fall. Um, We're getting ready to release uh, this year's edition. I think we're going to have a little bit big this year. But don't tell Jacob.
0: Because I'll want it all. Because he'll want
1: it all. So we don't have any more this year. But I think we're going to end up with like... Almost 650 bottles.
0: Wow! And where are you getting your <laughs>
1: where are you getting Good your malted barley? So all of our barley is coming out of a maltster uh, up in Wisconsin. They get most of it from a little bit up in the southern parts of Canada, and then you go a little farther west into like Wyoming, and that area. Um, that's where most of the barley comes from. Beautiful. But our maltsters, the maltster is only about 90 miles away from us in southeastern Wisconsin. Wonderful. So interesting thing about this is that it's a single malt, uh, 100% malted barley. Uh, those of you who are particular whiskey geeks will realize that uh, that's not the law in the U.S. Uh, single malt only has to be 51%. Uh, however, most competent and reasonable malt distillers are doing 100% malted barley. Um, and we're very proud that we're 100% malt. Uh, however... A fraction of that malt has been smoked with cherry wood, and so just like you cannot compete with Kentucky with making bourbon, uh, you cannot compete with the Scots making scotch. It <laughs> uh, turns out they make it pretty well. Um, I happen to particularly love peat whiskey. I'm sure many of the people in this room share that particular love, uh, but... They don't really have a whole lot of peat in the American Midwest. (laughs) If I'm blowing your mind, I apologize. Um, But I just see zero reason to try to import peat or peated malt from Scotland. So we don't.
0: (laughs) They probably have peat around the Great Lakes.
1: I, I did recently find a peat bog up in northern Michigan. Um, but they want north of $3 a pound for the peat-smoked malt. Yeah. you have to
0: to figure out how to smoke your own malt.
1: Yeah, we've looked at that. We've looked at a bunch of stuff. Um, Haven't been able to quite pull that one off because at $3 a pound, it's not going to work. No matter how much I like peat,
0: but this is, you That's said a, smoked with some cherry wood. Some so, of this grain is smoked with cherry wood. Now, why? What, what was the impetus behind that?
1: So cherry wood is going to be a little bit softer. It's going to be a little bit more native to the American Midwest. It's going to give a little bit softer smoke, a little bit sweeter smoke. You're not going to have any of that, you know, lovely saline, band-aid-y phenols that everybody loves when you look at an Isla Scotch. That's not going to be here. Uh, we doesn't taste like that. Uh, instead, this, and it's a relatively, it's 25% of the malt has been smoked that way. So it's not even all of it has been smoked, uh, just a little bit. And so I always think that I think that the few single malt has some smoky texture, but not so much on the smoky flavor. If you go look for smoke, you are going to find it. It is, in fact, present, but it's not dominating. Instead, I get a lot more, well, should I talk about my notes or?
0: No, let's have, let's open it up to these guys. These guys have great palates, yeah. so let's let's get some feedback from you guys. Stick your nose in the glass, breathe in gently through your mouth, and tell me what you're experiencing. What are you reminded of? What memories come to mind? Lumber. Okay. So like a sawdust, like a pretty raw kind of like lignans, kind of like that fresh. Uh, that it's it's a woodiness, you know. What else? Like another butter, like a
1: Kit Kat? Ooh, okay.
0: A little chocolatey. Yeah, it's very chocolatey to me on the nose. Dave, what are you
1: getting? All right. That that There's Ooh. a lot. Okay. When I first smelled oh, no.
0: it, I immediately smelled cream cheese frosting. Okay. And then, like, stale chocolate cake. Stale, uh, stale
1: chocolate. Yes, stale
0: chocolate cake. I mean, she's she keeps her cake around at home. <laughs> <laughs> hey,
1: when when Jane makes you a cake, you don't throw it. And cheers! God, cheers <laughs> to that! Cheers um, to sweet and Jane. Then, like a
0: little bit of sesame
1: and a little bit of gasoline. Wow. Okay. Excellent. It's funny you talk about chocolate cake. I usually get like the chocolate powder, like a cappuccino. Oh,
0: yeah.
1: um, so I get a little bit more of the powdery chocolate instead okay. of like the big rich chocolate. Yeah. Yeah. I'm getting a little <laughs> full chocolate flavor. There's <laughs> a
0: nuttiness to it too. I've got like a certain kind of um, like a salted nut thing happening. Maybe um, cashew. Cashew. You
1: mm. like, like a chestnut.
0: Or a chestnut, like something a chestnut. like that. Really, really nice. What does this run a bottle? If I was gonna grab a bottle for my home bar, what might I find this at? In so, my local uh, liquor store. Anybody know? Anybody yeah. Know? It's like around seventy dollars. Seventy dollars. Yeah.
1: Okay. Wow, it's beautiful. And the few bourbon would be about 45? 45, 45 uh, to 50? 49, 55 50?
0: on on bourbon. So, and then Rye yeah. right, will get to it's around like, like, like 50 times
1: yeah, yeah. sure.
0: So I think it you know, as these craft distillers are coming to market, if you want to support them, I mean, you gotta always remember that whiskey's not a zero sum game. There's plenty of room in the world for yeah. these smaller companies to come to market. But it takes you buying some bottles for your home bar to okay. help them. To survive. Yeah, it's about you guys right. and what you are into. That's what's going to make these craft distillers be able to uh, thrive, you know? Or not. Or not. <laughs> that's, uh, that's the world. So the few
1: Single Malt. All right, so, few so Dan malt. and I are
0: going to come around with the next mark.
1: Is this the rye, I assume? Yes. With a few rye is, the thing, is there, our product that got us noticed, it got us on the map. Uh, whiskey Advocate magazine gave us craft whiskey of the year. A couple of years ago, um, which was great, uh, but it led to uh, immediate sellouts everywhere. Uh, I got more than a couple of uh, phone calls from our friends out here in California. Um, angry they, phone calls? Uh, a couple of them were angry. I actually got one from a uh, well from a distributor. I won't name. I won't name them. Uh, that literally <laughs> called me up. And, is this Paul? I'm like, yes. This is so and so from distributor X Y Z. Who the fuck are you? <laughs> and why are all my customers calling and asking for this product that is not in my warehouse? Yeah. Who the... F- I never heard of you, yeah. but my phone is blowing up today, and I... Don- oh, yes. Who the fuck? Yeah. I I'm, I'm just Paul. I don't know what
0: to tell you, man. I'm Paul. I apologize um, for his rudeness. These yeah. Southern California people, they There's can be Northern. a bit temperamental. Mm-hmm. All <laughs> uh, right. So, <laughs> This is your rye. Yeah. So what's the mash bill on this so rye? So
1: mash bill on the rye, 70% rye, 20% corn, 10% malt. Wow, that's so, a super high rye. So high rye, but you know, it's very different than virtually every rye that's out there. It's the reverse of the burden. Exactly. Yeah. All of our mash bills are always 70-20-10. Except for the single malt, which is 100% malt, but that's yeah. different. Uh, by using 70% of the big grain, it gives you all of the big grain that you want. The big grain certainly dominates. It's all there. But by having 20% of the small grain, there's enough there that it really has a market effect on the flavor, but it doesn't dominate. And of course, 10% malt means that you can ferment. Um, No ferment, no whiskey, no whiskey, no distillery, no distillery, no trips to LA to spend a Monday night with you. (laughs) (laughs) all So that's great. Where do you guys get the rye? So all of our rye is going to be coming from us from Wisconsin, (laughs) as well as uh, we'll get some from like Ontario. Uh, We get everything... Really as close to home as we can get. You know, we are in Chicago. Uh, it's kind of the breadbasket of North America. Getting local grains doesn't really make us a saint. It just makes us not stupid. Um, we're not farmers. You know, we're in an urban area. We're not quite as urban as downtown L.A., uh, but uh, Jacob's been there. It's We're urban. We're not going to grow our own grain. Um I did try to get the high school to grow corn for us. <laughs> um, wow. I offered them an open order, like, all the grain you guys grow, all the corn you guys grow, I will buy. And they said, well, what are you going to use it for? I'm like, well, I'm going to make whiskey. <laughs> I'm like, well, we're not going to sell it to you then. I'm like, what do you care if That's I do with it? Like, we're in high school. We can't make whiskey. I'm like, no, I will make the whiskey. Do you grow the corn. No. I'm like, all right. That's That's
0: hilarious. Uh, So So, to tail back around, what was the story that you wanted to tell us quickly about Evanston's
1: history in terms of the Prohibition? uh, So in terms of Prohibition, Evanston started the entire Prohibition movement. Uh, Bastards. Bastards. Uh, Evanston started as a dry town, was actually founded as a city in order to be dry. Um, And because it was already dry, the women that were driving the Prohibition movement forward nationally used Evanston as their natural home base. The second head of this group of women was the the Women's Christian Temperance Union, uh, was named Frances Elizabeth Willard. And so, an awful lot of people. uh, No, that's a sheer coincidence. Everything in town is named after her, including an elementary school. And so, obviously, it would be poor taste to name a liquor brand after an elementary school. And I did not very specifically did not do that. It's just a pure coincidence. <laughs> a lot of people think I did, but I'm right. telling you.
0: So somewhere so. there's a, a, a graveyard in Evanston, and there's this vibration coming <laughs> from the ground, and it is Francis is spinning so hard.
1: Well, and, but in, you, also, you also have to look at it a different way, too, because the world looked really different in the 1860s, 1850s, 1870s. Uh, Per capita consumption of whiskey was over 15 gallons per person. And so if you you think for a second that perhaps some of the children weren't drinking their share of the whiskey and some of the women weren't drinking their fair share of the whiskey and some of the men weren't drinking their fair share of the whiskey, uh, the people that were drinking their share of the whiskey were drinking an awful lot of whiskey. And this is at a time in the world when there's no social safety net Social safety nets don't exist. Um, Spousal abuse is not only legal, but kind of expected. Um, If your husband's... Yeah, women certainly didn't work, because it wouldn't be ladylike. Um, So if your husband comes home having spent all of his money at the bar, uh, drinking that much whiskey, uh, maybe the world looks really different to if you are a woman. So... If you put yourself in the shoes of a Francis Willard, uh, I think life looks really different, and prohibition starts sounding like a much more reasonable and attractive solution to your problems. Because what other solutions do you realistically have? And we can laugh and say prohibition doesn't work, and this is stupid. But it turns out we really still have prohibition over all sorts of stuff today. Uh, they're trying to ban guns. They're trying to ban this. You can't. You can't shoot up heroin. <laughs> what? Seriously? Oh my. Um, and there's all sorts of stuff you can do out here in California that I can't do at home. Um, yeah, my glaucoma treatments just simply can't happen at home. Um, oh my. But Okay, so. Um, <laughs> Moving on from the
0: colon treatment, <laughs> let's stick our nose in the glass and try to think of things other than so, colon treatments.
1: Glaucoma. Uh, glaucoma. So, mm-hmm. a so, uh, few, few rye whiskey. Uh, 70 702010 rye, corn, malt, uh, wine yeast on the ferment. So we talked a little bit about the um, that kind of Saison, Belgian yeast on the bourbon. I think it helps give it a little bit of that spice. On the rye with, you know, 70% rye in there, you're going to have plenty of spice already. And so we use a wine yeast because I think it really brings out a little bit more of the fruity notes, in particular in the middle and the finish.
0: So stick your nose in the glass. And how, how do you experience this whiskey? Yeah, remember, your experiences all of this is completely subjective, so there's no wrong answers. Dried fruit? Okay. What else? Apricot, mango, peachy.
1: Also, I'm getting, like, a slight like menthol. OK.
0: okay. Pistachio. Yeah. Pistachio, menthol. What are you guys getting? Anybody? Well, yeah, there's a berry character in there for me. There's, like, a underneath that spice, you got, like, this
1: chocolate and blueberries happening for me. I usually get a lot more tart cherry than I'm getting right now. Uh, there's cherry and some stone fruit. Yeah, it's beautiful. I love this. So, it's impressive.
0: Now you have no age statements, but being a small distillery and using the smaller barrels, uh, what what where are we ringing in for like the bourbon, the single malt, and the rye here? What are so, the different ages?
1: We don't put age statements on anything primarily because I don't believe in them. Um, to me, an age statement is really the provide hiding information by trying to pretend you're providing some. So all it really does is tell you how much time something spent in a barrel. Doesn't tell you the mash bill, doesn't tell you the char, doesn't tell you where the barrels are from, doesn't tell you. The yeast they use doesn't tell you proof off the still, doesn't tell you barrel entry proof. All it does is tell you one little bit of information that can mislead people into thinking they know a lot more than they actually get told. And so I don't use age statements because I don't really think it matters. Uh, I think what matters is the whiskey in the glass, and that's where we go. Certainly we make our whiskey a little bit differently than everybody else, and so age statements don't really necessarily apply to the way we make our whiskey. All right.
0: But can you give me a, a, I mean, it's kind of thrown off anyway because if you're using smaller barrels, are you using smaller barrels with the rye whiskey as well?
1: hmm
0: Okay. Well, so,
1: again, but we use a blend. We use some small barrels. We use right. some medium-sized barrels. We use some bigger barrels. What, um, what kind of
0: blend is that? Can you it depends describe on the, it? It depends on the blend. Again, it goes to right. taste. Again, it
1: goes to taste. And so depending on the blend we're making, we might be looking for something that's a little bit younger to provide a little more vibrancy. You might be looking for something that's going to be a little bit older to give it a little bit more heft. Okay. You uh, might be looking for something that's you know particular on the rye. You might be looking for something that's going to be a little bit more fruity. Um, every barrel is fundamentally different, and by not using an age statement, it gives us a lot more freedom to blend in whiskey that may not hit a particular random number. And uh, We also think it helps... Make you focus on the liquid in the glass rather than the number on the label.
0: Now, if you've got whiskey that's in these like small barrels, say so you've got some whiskey in these little fifteen-gallon barrels, ten-gallon mm-hmm. barrels, um, and it starts to take taste really, really woody. Do you then take it out and rest it in yeah. some stainless
1: steel? And- yep. So if it's if it's gone too long, um, it's one of the lessons we've learned <laughs> is when it goes too long. Um, take it out and sit and stand up until we need that blend. Okay. Because um, you can.
0: You can, you can use it as a grape, <laughs> even if it's over-oaked, mm-hmm. you, can, you can blend it down and, and make it palatable again. Correct. So, how you guys like this rye whiskey here? Right? It's quite beautiful. So, Paul, Paul will you talk briefly about the Chicago Awards here and
1: the, and the bottles? Oh, sure. So you talked a little bit about Evanston and Francis Willard and you know being dry. Uh, but while all this kind of prohibition movement was happening, the city of Chicago burned to the ground in the Great Chicago Fire. Um, thereafter, the city rebuilt and wanted to announce to the back to the world that Chicago is a major metropolitan city and tr- a true world class city. Uh, we held the Columbian Exposition to celebrate 400 years of Columbus sailing the ocean blue. Supposed to happen in 1892, but at Chicago, so we got a little held up. Um, we get to, we'll get to it. Uh, but uh, so we actually had the World's Fair in 1893, uh, where Miss Willard was a featured speaker, uh, spoke in front of 300,000 people on the virtues of temperance, and all of our labels uh, celebrate stuff you would have seen, or except for this one, um, that doesn't exist. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Um, But all of our labels really celebrate stuff you would have seen for the first time at the World's Fair, celebrating the rebirth of of Chicago and the finest achievements that mankind could achieve at the time, uh, ranging from the Statue of the Republic on our bourbon bottle, which was the size of the Statue of Liberty but made out of paper mache Um, so it melted during the World's Fair because it wasn't supposed to be there forever. It was only supposed to be there for a few months, so why make it out of marble? It's a gaga. We're good. (laughs) Um, uh, The single malt uses the train that people took. Uh, 1893 was, strictly speaking, after the invention of the automobile, but there were only two or three on the planet, so most people weren't driving them places. Uh, So people coming to the World's Fair had to either walk, ride a horse or take a train. And so the single malt uses the train and putting, that, you know, putting the horses in perspective, about a third of the population of the United States came to Chicago during the World's Fair, um, about 300,000 people a day. Uh, think about today if you try to put 300,000 people into LA um, or 300,000 more people <laughs> into LA. Um, it's a little intense. Uh, and then uh, the Rye celebrates the world's first uh, electric water fountain All right. uh, people were starting to learn how to control electricity uh, but everybody realized that water and electricity don't mix very good <laughs> and so it'd be pretty mind-blowing to walk someplace and see water being chucked into the air by electricity you know yes we kind of we're over that now we're kind of seeing water fountains Um but still, pretty cool. Very yeah. cool.
0: What about the proof? The proof of that? So
1: it, all of our whiskeys are bottled at 93 proof, in honor of the 1893 World Fair. So a little bit higher than we some. It should have waited until
0: 1899. <laughs> it would be more expensive. 18101. <laughs> we got that too. Beautiful. Well, thank you. for that. I really love that rye whiskey and. Paul brought in a little treat for you guys here in the Seven Grand Whiskey Society. We were drinking the, the breakfast gin in our punch, which Dave really loved.
1: It was great. <laughs> I love real cream. It was in a gin, so like great. It's, it's perfect. It's
0: no losing there. No losing. Everybody wins. And, and, and going back to the, the theory that in order to drink all day... You need to start early. They came out with their breakfast whiskey, which has some pancakes
1: on the front cover. So uh, It's a perfect whiskey for your pancakes. Um, so this, we talk about uh, only you know, 600 bottles of the malt. Uh, we do release a single malt every year. This is a one-time only release, and uh, we only released 180 bottles of it, and exclusively in the state of California. Uh, we don't have this anywhere else on the planet, other than in the great state of California. And what we did here is we worked with a uh, maple syrup company. And uh, maple syrup companies like to barrel-age their syrup uh, because you get a little bit of bourbon flavor in the maple syrup. And if you've ever had a bourbon barrel-aged maple syrup, you know it's really freaking delicious. So a very fun whiskey. Uh, It's not a maple-flavored whiskey. There's no maple added. Uh, This is not... It's a little bit of a stupid distiller trick, because we used a maple syrup, or a barrel that had it was our barrel that we gave to a syrup company, and they gave it back to us. Uh, so there's no syrup added, there's no flavoring. there's none of this stuff. It's just a, our bourbon whiskey finished in a barrel of ours that held maple syrup in it kind of in between. I think this, this sweet maple, I think, really cranks up that clove. Yeah. And so it's actually relatively spicy.
0: Yeah, very with a lot good.
1: of black pepper. But I also get like a vanilla milkshake because mm. there's some interesting kind of.
0: bourbon.
1: Yeah, this is this is our few bourbon. This is the same whiskey just finished. Beautiful.
0: How uh, do you ferment?
1: Ferments about four days. So pretty long ferment. Um, relatively long, but again, we temperature control, so it's not going to be super fast. Yeah. Um, we ferment at 72, which it's not super low, so, um, but it's it's consistent throughout. So by, so by controlling the temperature of
0: your fermentation, are you elongating the aerobic phase or the anaerobic
1: phase? And. So the aerobic phase, is, is this... Do people understand what we are talking about when you talk about aerobic or anaerobic and lag phase? Okay, so... Is that, am I too we, geeky, or where should I get... This is important. <laughs> I think you're, you're, okay.
0: Yeah, well, talking about yeast, when you first pitch the yeast into your wash, the uh, the yeast will multiply. The first phase, the aerobic phase, is the yeast just, it's an asexual um, uh, single... It's splitting two. Yeah, it just keeps splitting until it basically coats the top of your... Mash tone, right? Or you well, can explain the aerobic phase a little
1: bit so more. Y- so that's, that's not wrong, obviously. It's correct. Uh, what it really does is it's going to try to rebuild until most of the oxygen in the wash is gone. So one of the key elements in building the cell walls for yeast, people know it? Yeast? I mean, actually, maybe, I'm going to back up a second. Uh, so yeast are a single cell organism. So I always think of yeast as being very similar to uh, myself, Uh, because (laughs) I'm basically a single-cell organism as well. But the the first mission of a yeast is to reproduce. And so yeast are going to reproduce until they really cannot reproduce anymore. Then they're going to do other stuff. But they have all this energy, and one of the things they do is they take all of the nutrients and all of the oxygen, and they build up a strong cell wall, and then it splits in half because it can. And so when you've got oxygen in your wort and in your wash, it's going to soak up all that oxygen. It's going to get really nice cell walls, and it's going to continue to split and split and split and split until kind of all of that primary source of energy is gone. Once that's all gone, now it's going to start going. Oh shit! Um, I got to do other stuff now because all everything's gone. So what they're going to then do is change the way that they are processing all their energy, and they're actually going to start doing what we want them to do, which is to produce alcohol. Uh, Yeast don't really want to produce alcohol. They want to reproduce. Um, So it's a balancing act because... that's (laughs) when the
0: shift happens between what we call the aerobic phase of the yeast process and then the anaerobic phase. Correct. Once they've taken all the oxygen, then it starts making alcohol. That's when the alcohol production happens in the anaerobic phase.
1: Correct. So in the anaerobic phase, if there's no more oxygen, it's going to continue to try to stay alive. And while it's staying alive, it's going to be being anaerobic because there is no more aerobic, i.e. oxygen to use, so at that point it's gonna start what is really the proper form of fermentation, and it's going to convert all of these sugars that are in the wash into energy for itself to continue to thrive. And byproducts of that include carbon dioxide that float out into the air, A byproduct of yeast trying to survive is ethyl alcohol, that. It's kind of the whole reason why we're all here today. Uh, (laughs) It's true. uh, It also produces acetone and methanol and congeners and fusel oils and all sorts of other stuff as well. Acetylaldehyde. Acetylaldehydes. Again, all of the byproducts of fermentation are all just really the byproduct of the yeast trying to stay alive. Um, And so all of those compounds are basically a function of the environment that the yeast are going to be thriving and surviving in yeast not being all that different then i'm not gonna pick on anybody here i'm just gonna pick on me but they thrive in conditions so if you take me for example if it's really really cold out uh, what do i want to do when it's really really cold out you're gonna sit home you're gonna curl up under the covers maybe you're just gonna go to sleep and rest Uh, but you're not gonna really be doing a whole lot of work because it's too damn cold and so if your fermentation temperatures are are too cold Your yeast are going to be effectively dormant because they're just resting and trying to conserve energy. Um, They're not going to do a whole lot. So being too cold is bad. If, on the other hand, it's you know a buck five in the shade and it's crazy hot and you're just all sweaty and angry and you're pissed off and you know the way that that driver over there looked at you really made you angry and then hang on your horn. Yeast are the same way, and if it's too hot, then they're going to start producing all these really angry flavors, which is kind of like a lot of tails and all the really off flavors. So yeast will survive and survive until they'll actually heat. they will actually heat themselves to death. Uh, fermentation itself is exothermic, meaning it puts out heat, and so yeast will ferment and go until they kill themselves off with heat, which is a way that many people ferment. It's just not what we do. Um, so we try to keep it at the right temperature because by controlling the temperature, the fermentation controls the environment for the yeast. And the yeast are, since the yeast are actually making the alcohol that we want to drink, uh, we try to make sure that their lives are very, very comfortable and very, very happy. Uh, because comfortable yeast produce comfortable whiskey and comfortable whiskey sells an awful lot better. Um.
0: Yeah, and going back to your question of how long is the fermentation, the reason we want to know that is that you think of a, a yeast as a lifespan, like anything, and it does different things, like when it's stressed out or as opposed to when it's not stressed out. And so the longer the lifespan, the more variants of flavors
1: the yeast is going to give you over its course of its life. Yeah, and different yeasts produce different flavors, like we're talking about the beer yeast or the wine yeast. Uh, there are certainly yeast strains out there that will ferment to north of 20% alcohol in their wash. Um, so uh, you, you said that you I was
0: you're using a wine yeast. Why that? Is that a tougher yeast that'll go longer with that kind of more acidic mass? No,
1: no, I like the fruit. Um, so we use the wine yeast because it, it is slightly more alcohol tolerant. Um so the bourbon will go to about nine and a half to ten percent on the wash. Our wine, the wine yeast is going to be a little more tolerant, so it's going to go to maybe 11, 11.5, um, whereas the distiller's used to go to 21, 22, uh, but I don't like the way they taste. Uh, every yeast strain is going to have different flavor characteristics because they're actually different creatures. Um, so we control our yeast, which controls the flavors that we get. We control the fermentation temperature, which controls the flavors that we get out of the individual yeasts. And we control the distillation proof, which controls the esters that are going to come through the still, et cetera, et cetera. Um, So everything just kind of cascades out. Uh, So you asked about, you know, what's a four-day ferment. There's a lot of things happening during fermentation, especially as you kind of get towards half to three-quarters and all the way through the anaerobic phase. Um, because the yeast really don't like alcohol. Uh, Yeast don't like being in an alcohol bath. It's not pleasant for them. So some are more tolerant, others are less tolerant, but once all the sugars starts to disappear, they're gonna start trying to process other chemicals that that they're surrounding as their food. And so some of those reactions are going to be beneficial to the flavors that we want. Some of them are not. Uh, You'll see other distillers uh, will go super long on the ferment. And they'll go to get a whole bunch of a lacto ferment. Um, you know, if anybody knows Leopold Brothers, uh, they're pretty notorious for like super long ferments because they go super lacto on their ferment intentionally. Um, it's uh, they go ten days, I think, super super long. Interesting. Um, but again, controlling that ferment controls the flavors of the whiskey that you're making. Um, and my friends at uh, there's a little house in Denver called Family Jones. I don't know if anybody's heard of them. Uh you probably haven't unless you're from Denver, but they go crazy lacto. Like I saw I was there about a month ago and they had a you know whole film of mold on their ferment and it wasn't done yet. And it was probably uh maybe sixteenth of an inch thick cap of mold on the ferment. And they're like, God, it's just starting to come in, we're almost there. Um <laughs> Uh, but it was—it it looks gross, and it sounds gross, right? I mean, like, I don't want that. No, it's really good. Um, Lacto ferments are awesome, if if that's what you're looking for. Yeah. Um,
0: and what might that bring to a flavor profile?
1: Fruit. Fruit. Tart, fruit. Um, you know, taste of Leopold, taste, taste Leopold whiskey, you get crazy fruit. Um, Again, that beautiful, rich, long ferment.
0: hmm well, thank you, Paul, for coming out tonight yeah. and tasting us on these
1: wonderful listings. <laughs> thank, thank you. I appreciate you coming out. Uh, you could have been anywhere in the world, but you're here with me tonight, so I appreciate that. I have one
0: question. Okay. No, please. What, was, what were you doing before you uh, opened and started distilling?
1: <clears throat> mm. So before few, I had a checkered career, might be the proper term. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was a pro guitar player for a while. I owned a record label for a minute. I'm really bad at running a record label. (laughs) I can safely say there are not many people on the planet who are worse at running a record label than I am. Um, Really, really bad. Um, I designed and built custom guitar effects pedals for a while. Um, Practiced law for far too long. Uh, But... uh, I did did a lot of things. Uh, But basically all my life I've always tried to be creative, because that's, I like making new stuff. And when I go, when I get up in the morning, what gets me excited is, aside from my wife and aside from my kids, is making stuff and having something that is different. Um, That's always been true. And you know, one thing led to another, and I figured out that I'm actually pretty good at making whiskey. <laughs>
0: right. Cheers to that. Uh, Thank you, Paul. Right. Paul Hedko, guys, from Fuse Spirits. Yeah, get a bottle for you.
1: Thank you, Paul.
0: Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you like what you heard, please head over to Apple Podcasts and give us a five star rating and review. The Spirit Guide Society is a Spirit Adventures production in association with Bitten from the Apple Productions. Special thanks to Tone Mesa for their post production and audio services. The show was produced by Andrew Apple and me, Pedro Shanahan, Executive Producer Andrew Abrahamson. Be sure to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Spirit Guide SOC. We'll be there to answer any questions you have, share what we're drinking.